and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Colette Bennett and I'm Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners of our podcast will know, we have three different types. We have a 10-minute lesson series where we take a very brief overview of some policy topics, really just touching on the points that we think people should know. We have a seminar series, which is a look back at our conferences and our seminars to hear from national and international experts. And then we have our interview series, and today's is one of those. So this is really a chance to sit down with some experts and talk about a diverse range of policy topics. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Amanda Roberts and Avril Easton of the Irish Hospice Foundation, and we're talking all things death. But please don't be put off. Um, It's actually a very upbeat, very practical conversation um, where you get to hear from two real experts in this field, a field of compassion, one of understanding, but also one that recognises the social inequalities and difficulties that can apply to people once they have been bereaved. The Irish Hospice Foundation have recently published a report looking at the financial impact of bereavement. And that's primarily what we're going to talk about. But we do get to talk about all other things, too. So I hope you enjoy. So, Avril, Amanda, thank you so much for joining me today. It's brilliant to see you both. Um, And it's a really, really important topic that we're going to be discussing. So you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks a million. So if I can start you off on an easy ball question, just a little bit about the organisation, what the, the foundation does why was it established and, and the work that it does? Because just for those who may not be aware of, I suppose, the breadth of the work that you do. Yeah, Irish Hospice Foundation was established by our founder, Dr. Mary Redmond, in 1987. Um, and just to say, to acknowledge Dr. Mary Redmond, the honorary award was uh, given to your own founders, uh, Dr. Sean Healy and uh, Sister Bridget Reynolds at the Wheel Conference this week. Um, so a really nice tie in from them and their work around Social Justice Ireland. Uh, Dr. Mary Redmond, when she established Irish Hospice Foundation, it was that vision of bringing the hospice movement together. Um, she wanted to see investment in palliative care. She could see the benefits of it. Um, but at the time, I suppose hospices were very limited um, and she wanted to see more of them. So that was our origins. And I suppose over the last 30 or so years, the work has evolved, as you say, um, into where we are now, which is focusing very much on the, the broad end of life care experience and the bereavement experience for people. So uh, beyond the hospices into um, our work with hospice friendly hospitals, which was bringing that philosophy into hospitals so that people could expect the same dignity and um, I suppose experience that I suppose the hospice movement is so um, renowned for and then equally I suppose what was happening was the experience of bereavement was something that had been overlooked. Um, There are many organizations out there working with specific bereavement groups but our work around bereavement is that piece that ties all that together the the experience of bereavement highlighting awareness of it um, and there's many other aspects to the work. I suppose another core one that people wouldn't be necessarily that familiar with is the broad amount of education and training that we do with a variety of with the public through our bereavement workshops, but equally with healthcare professionals through our Karoo programme, working with nursing homes, again, a key place where people are dying and where people, again, staff 
and families want to be assured that their their loved one has that experience. Um, so that's one of the more recent ones. And I, I, again, one of the areas we're hoping to work with more in the future is around the experience for people dying at home. So it's it's a wide breadth of work, um, a wide breadth of issues. And it kind of tries to, I suppose our work tries to encapsulate all those who experience the journey from dying death um, and into the bereavement. So that's a little bit about Irish Hospice Foundation. So it's it's more than just the hospices, it's all of that aspect of bereavement. And I'm really interested in that idea that, you know, you're out there, you're training organisations, you're training healthcare professionals to deal with the support requirements, I suppose, of, of people who are bereaved. You know, do you find many employers, and I'll, I'll, I'll I suppose we'll get into the, the report in a minute, but do you find that many employers in the private sector or you know, would, would call on your supports or is it mainly kind of public bodies? We tend to have, we have a grief in the workplace program within the bereavement team. So there's a couple of us in the bereavement team and we'd all have a different remit. So Amy, one of the people in our team, works after grief in the workplace. And that's starting to be a growing area of interest, particularly when we talk about, I suppose when we get into the research, we'll talk about, and legislation around bereavement leave and I suppose bereavement supports in the workplace is wider than the leave you know it's all those other supports that you need when you return to work so it is starting to become more of more of a um um kind of a, a request from statutory bodies but also from the private sector and um, sometimes it can be um because of something that happened in the workplace and then others it could be a crest regarding look at the whole well-being of their staff in general we're finding a growing awareness and we have successfully worked with ibec and ic2 um i suppose particularly from their diversity and inclusion perspective and a recognition that employees out there um, and employers are facing bereavement you know week in week out in larger organizations not just colleagues that may die but also colleagues that are bereaved and possibly in that particularly in that phase of returning to work following a bereavement uh, so I suppose like most things there's a growing awareness that it, it, it impacts on your 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 daily life your your home life impacts on your work life um, and they they're so interconnected they can't be disconnected that employers are um, uh, having more of a recognition of it I think a lot more work to be done, though, in that in that respect, um, because, again, it's quite a just like bereavement as an issue in general, it tends to be quite hidden. Yeah, I think um, I was very lucky to have a, a very supportive employer uh, 11 years ago when my dad passed and I, a colleague of mine who I'm really friendly with. I really, really like her. She made some off the cuff slagging remark as we would anyway and would normally be absolutely fine. And I packed up all of my things and I got into my car and like I left in the middle of the day and I rang my husband and I said, well, I've left work and I'm never going back and it's all done now and that's it. It's finished. He's like, I'm coming home. So after 12 hours of straight sleep, I went back into the office. My boss hadn't actually noticed that I'd left. Um, and my, my friends and colleagues were like, OK, is everything OK? Because it was a couple of months down the line. Yeah, um, yeah. So it wasn't, you know, connected or nobody had really connected it with the bereavement, but it was just that kind of being on edge, that being more sensitive, I suppose, than than usual, um, particularly to somebody that like I, I really like. So it's, it is very important that employers have an understanding of of what the impact is kind of yeah. overall, like that it's not just in the immediate, that there is that kind of longer term piece as well. To with 
workplaces also we do that in a, on a general level as well with public messaging so you know trying to create that grief literacy among the whole population um, grief in the workplace is a great program because you know grief um in the workplace a lot you know a lot of part of our population work you know and are in the workplace but some aren't so it's around that general raising awareness of we react differently you know there's no timeline to grief you know and all that sort of supportive pieces as well is is really important part of our work as well absolutely i think it's something that people know on a level that there's you know that it's not a straight line that there's not a, a time limit on it but in the work context even when you are bereaved you kind of feel okay now i've had the week i need to get yeah. back at it now come on up yeah. we go um and it can be difficult to have that shift for the person who is bereaved but also for the people around them that you know well you're back in the office so we're all you must we're be all okay. back at it like yeah, yeah exactly you must be grand um if i can come to your most recent piece of research um, and I was very privileged to be invited to the research advisory group. Thank you very much. Um, this is the real financial impact of bereavement. And it was published last October. Um, can you, I suppose, can you give some context to the background of it? Why did you decide that this was the, the thing to, to concentrate on? I suppose to kind of come back to the very start, I suppose when we talk about bereavement, I suppose it affects all of us at some stage of our life. No one will escape it. And um, in and around 30,000 people die each year. And what the research suggests, in around 10 people are significantly impacted by a death. So about 6% of our population are newly bereaved each year. So it's a common experience for everyone. For everyone. And um, I suppose when we look at the impacts of bereavement, it can affect how we feel, think, behave, interact with people, but also has a financial impact. It has it had never been researched in Ireland before. And it was something that we really felt quite strongly about and we've been kind of looking to do this for a while so an opportunity came up where the department of social protection offers a grant to kind of pursue this work and i suppose with a lot of our work we always try to work collaboratively with people so it was great to have you on board with a number of um key stakeholders that would have been working kind of frontline and know the front issues around um, bereavement, poverty or, you know, uh, struggles or financial difficulty. So we kind of got a lot of stakeholders on board to kind of help us along with the process. So like we had the Department of Social Protection, we had St. Vincent Paul, we had yourself in Social Justice Ireland, European Anti-Poverty Network alone, System Information Service. So a lot of kind of key stakeholders, uh, it was great they came on board with us. So when we did the research, we kind of knew at the start, look, it hasn't been done before. We're going to do an exploratory piece initially. So we looked at the literature. We got someone to do a literature review. We looked at kind of um, kind of the big piece of the work was we did a survey. And we did a survey with um, a population-based survey, representative of the Irish population, about 1,000 people. And what we wanted to find out, well, what are your attitudes to a financial impact agreement? What's your experience if you have been bereaved? And so these are kind of all the questions that we were looking for. And um. There's a couple of the key findings, I suppose. The study gives us insight into some of the key issues, but it also provided us with um, directions for future research. I know we'll talk that about that a little bit later on, but that's kind of an important piece to hold. And one of our key messages we wanted to give across this research and what the research shows us is that costs related to bereavement do extend far beyond the cost of the funeral. Because the first thing we do think of is the financial impact of bereavement is, oh, the cost of funeral. But it really is the longer term impact that sometimes we just don't think of. 
And we have a couple of, I know we kind of said before, Claire, we've kind of a couple of kind of key findings. I might just walk you through a little bit and just, you know, ask me if there's anything kind of specific about a key area. But one of the things we kind of said, look, we had a thousand people um, uh, complete the survey for us. And what we found is about 68% of people have been bereaved in the last three years. So 68% of them are recently bereaved. And when we asked them, okay, these bereaved people, how many were impacted or have financial challenges as a result of the bereavement? One in five said they actually did experience financial challenges because of the bereavement. And these challenges ranged from struggling to pay everyday expenses, struggling to pay rent or their mortgage, going into long-term debt. And some did say, yes, look, I actually did struggle to pay for the funeral as well. So that was um, quite a, a large, you know, significant proportion of the population that were significantly or had challenges because of the bereavement. And then other kind of areas that we kind of looked at that look impact, general impact. But we did kind of say, well, what was the impact on health? And what we found here is that one in three had a negative, uh, the bereavement negatively affected their health. And that ranged from mental health, physical health. And one big thing as well, two and five, is about social isolation as well. And that was an impact from from the bereavement. And then when we talk about costs as well, one in three required a form of treatment for that health impact. And then three and five went on to say, look, that health issue actually had a financial impact on my life. So, so that's kind of one of the, the key areas as well as impact on health. I suppose one, or, one of the key areas was, was in fairness to find out what are people's understanding of the funeral costs. And I know the survey didn't seek to quantify the actual cost of the funeral, but it did try to look at, well, what's your understanding and experience of funeral costs? And so what we found, people, look, one in five said, look, I have a good knowledge of the cost of organising a funeral. And when we asked people to kind of, can you give us an average estimate of how much a funeral cost? People did say in and around five and a half thousand. And when we asked people to estimate, we said, look, consider buying the grave, the funeral director's fee, transport flowers, so all these sorts of things that are involved. And I think it's important to note, we actually don't have any official stats on funeral costs in Ireland. And that's one of the things I suppose we look to consider when we talk about future directions for research or um, gathering more information. And one of the big things that came up actually around funeral costs is this idea of the importance of doing the right thing. So we asked kind of the, the a thousand people, so this is the inattitude. And what we found was that 84% of the population uh, in our survey said, no one should get into debt to pay for a funeral. But then nearly as many said, but there's a lot of pressure to provide a decent funeral. And then when you asked about the money thing, which was a bit more concerning for us, because we kind of said uh, 28% of people said, look, I'd actually prefer to take out a private loan than actually go and seek assistance from the government and charity. So that was kind of one thing, kind of, I suppose, is to take away from that research. How do we get people, how do we raise awareness around charity and government funding? And how do we make people more comfortable accessing it? Um, yeah, and I, I do they're... think that's a really interesting point, Amanda. If yeah. I can come in at that point. Yeah, yeah, far away. That is one of those things that, you know, I suppose it's wrapped into this is somebody that you loved, you cared about, that you want you want to give the send-off for. Yeah. And there's that thing of not wanting to let someone down. And you've lovely quotes in from the focus groups in the report about making sure they, they get the right send off and it being really important to them. And it doesn't matter how much it costs. They just want to make sure they've been looked after and they've been sent off properly. And, you know, so there's that element of wanting to do it yourself and not have to go to charity for it, not have to, even if financially, you know, you're actually 
you're taking out debt to do that. You know, it's it's coming from somewhere else. It's not coming out of your own resources. Yeah. But also then there's there's an element of, well, this is the expectation as well. So, you know, if we don't have this type of send off and there can be cultural aspects to it or there could just be, you know, just your own kind of sense of where you stand within your own community and making sure that everybody knows that we're all right and that they're OK. And we've, we've done the proper send off that people can come and trip to the house or to the funeral home and the sandwiches are there and the, the you know, the tea afterwards or the lunch or whatever. And I think it's it's really important to recognize that point that this isn't this isn't one of those things that that has any real rational attachment this is much more emotional than that this is not just about you it's about this person it's the it's the final thing that you do for them yeah yeah and i think we went on in the survey to say well where does the money come from and what six percent of people said look the funeral is actually paid by the deceased person, whether they leave money, whether it's paid for their estate or they prepay it. And the remaining people got the money from either government, charity, went into debt or took out a loan. But then we went on to say, ask people um, what they said. 30% said they had some difficulty afford the funeral. And when the qualitative, or, or sorry, when we asked kind of open-ended, well, how did this happen? How did you, what are the main reasons why you got into difficulty? And it's exactly what you said there. About a third said, we want to give them the good send-off. And then another third said, we actually underestimated how much are the costs involved. Do you know, so it was a double kind of, they were the main kind of most common reasons people came. But it's exactly what you said. It's the last thing you can actually do for the person. Is, is you know, at the end of life, is that, funeral or that send off and that's what people hold on to and you mentioned earlier on you were talking about the social impact so you know it's you obviously have the the bereavement side of things but that knock-on effect those other types of impact that that kick in you know was there any exploration in terms of well what does that mean is it because you've lost a partner so that kind of social partner you know to somewhere to go to places with or is it that people kind of felt, well, I'm, I'm, I'm almost covered in this bereavement. I, you know, I, I don't feel I, sh- I can go out. I don't feel that I'm company. You know, is it was there was there a mix of that in the responses? There wasn't. I suppose um, we didn't look in, in depth in that way. But I suppose from other research that you know we've looked at or we've um, been involved in, there are different aspects, and I suppose how there's loads of different factors. Um, was it a sudden death? Was it someone that you're really close to? So loads of different fe- uh, factors will affect how we experience a bereavement. But one of the things that this study did look at, and I, and I know from previously talking to you, the impact on employment and the, the workplace came up as a, a really big um, issue in this research. And it's one of the things we would work in in, in, in the IHF. But it's also one, the, one area that we want to explore further. And I suppose when we ask people, look, if you were bereaved and you're employed at the time, what we found here is over half of the people um, were employed at the time. And it, it's about 50, I think it was 56% actually changed their working, working conditions after the death. Some of the people took paid leave, some unpaid leave, some took a combination of it. Some reduced their hours and a really small percent, about 4% actually left their job. You know, yeah, so I was really struck impact. by that. You yeah, know, it's, yeah. it is, as you say, it's a relatively small percentage yeah, yeah. but if you look at that across the working yeah. population and as you said you both acknowledged it this is going to happen to us all we are all going to experience bereavement in some way shape or form yeah. and 
for 4% of the working population just to leave altogether, to not be able to, to go forward. Like that is a staggering amount of people. And that doesn't and take into account... Sorry. I mean, it's possibly more a reflection on the workplace as opposed to the person. Um, and I think that goes back to why the grief in the workplace work is so important, because if there was no acknowledgement um, of your loss in the workplace, you are going to be left with an extremely bad taste in your mouth. And I would say, yes, some of that was possibly the person's ability, but I would say a vast majority of them were that was the experience they had been not acknowledged um, and people saying this isn't the place I want to be. Um, and it, it can show that, you know, the most drastic of the impact of not investing in employees in that way. Um, yeah, sorry, Amanda. But even, no, but even the wider issue, and I know this research didn't look into this too in depthly, but this idea of absenteeism and presenteeism, you know, that, that really, and you're supposed, I suppose, apart from the compassionate ground, you always try to get people on the hook sometimes. Look, this will save your business money. If you want to look at it from a purely financial, you know, financial head, it will save your, your business money if you support your staff. And I suppose a lot of the grief in the workplace program will say, look, someone coming back to work after significant loss their concentration is going to be affected they're going to get overwhelmed more easily so just they're not not doing their work for not you know for because they don't want to you know these all these things and even when we talk about children going back to school concentration is affected behavior might you know because they can't concentrate behavior might be more off the wall than normal and raising that awareness around teachers you know so um i suppose school is another kind of form of workplace but it's that idea of it's not just the seeing things it's the presenteeism it's the absenteeism all that other stuff that if you had the right support our, our big banter is having the right support at the right time um is a is a key in bereavement care i think yeah absolutely and i think you know the the, the numbers in terms of the people who you know, did so did have some change, particularly some change that impacted their their finances. So, you know, the the eleven percent who took unpaid leave, whether that was kind of a short term thing or a, a longer term piece, another seven percent took a combination. So there was still some unpaid leave there. Some left that job completely. You know, some worked reduced hours. That's all impacting on a much broader. Uh, financial piece than just this the, the kind of the funeral expenses bit which is such a great I suppose facet of this report that it isn't concentrated on when people think bereavement costs they immediately think as you said this is the funeral costs but it's so much broader than all of that and it's it can either be huge like that four percent who left work altogether or it can be it, it can mean the difference between you know that thing that you used to buy as part of your groceries that you just no longer can yeah. afford. Yeah. Um, and, you know, making those kind of choices, those kind of cuts. I'm also struck, though, and maybe I'm just reading into it, but I'm also struck by that there was a fairly high proportion. So, you know, over um, two fifths of, of people, 41%, said they'd no change to their working arrangements. Yeah. No change. Now, that to me goes to Avril's point where it's like, how do you have no change to your work arrangements? So you just got up the next day and you went back to work. How, how does I, that... I remember hearing a story um, 
uh, a shopkeeper, a guy worked uh, as a shopkeeper. And I remember he was a bit rude to uh, a customer. And I remember the customer complained. And they went to the, the line manager and said, look, his man died two days ago. He has to work. We've no bereavement leave. He actually has to be here. Um, and I'm sorry, he shouldn't have been that rude, but I just wanted to give you the context. Do you know, so you just, you don't know. And then I suppose when we looked at the, the person who died as well, you might necessarily, um, if a grandparent died and it was um, a very expected death, the person was sick for really, you know, a long time, how you experienced that death might be differently. Um, um, but then again, someone whose grandparent was nearly a surrogate mom to them, will experience that and have more of an impact. So that's kind of what we try to do in, in our work as well. It's not necessarily the name of the relationship. Sometimes it's it's the nature of that relationship, that, you know, that real nature or that real, you know, relationship with the person as opposed to the name of it. And it's interesting, like you referenced earlier on about the fact that, you know, even if you're not going to talk on compassionate grounds to employers, you might have the conversation around cold, hard facts you know, in that awful situation that you referenced earlier with, with the shop assistant, you know, he, they're going to lose business one way or another. They're yeah. either going to lose business because that customer is put off by the rudeness or, which would be my thing, put off by the fact that that person had no bereavement leave and had to stand there in a customer facing role two days after being bereaved. And even I suppose when we look about, I know Amy would talk a good bit in her work around there isn't any statutory bereavement leave in Ireland. And I actually didn't know that <laughs> up to, you know, a couple of years ago, we start reading around this area a bit more. And I came into this area. I just assumed there, you know, there was statutory leave, but it's all discretionary. And then even, um, you know, upon that, uh, I know in England, there's new uh, legislation regarding parent, uh, uh, rich parents, you know, Jack's law. And it's kind of, I know part of Amy's work is looking out what's around in other countries. And I just assumed, you know, brief and statutory was a thing. Mm. And it's not. Certainty is the life or death and taxes. It was like, well, if you have a death, you're going to have bereavement. Do you know, more, more bereavement than death. Do you know? So, but yeah. If I it's... could, um, I suppose just on one of the things the qualitative study identified was, and it's something, again, kind of leading, leading into the recommendations is, the, we all will experience a bereavement. But I suppose what the qualitative study has found some of those bereavements are much more impactful than others on for variety of reasons and variety of circumstances but particularly vulnerable groups to the economic impacts um you know are where a family is left with one income when they went you know they may go from a two income family to a one income family um migrants which is something that we're kind of all as a society going what how do we grapple with this way beyond the, the the basics of you know housing food you know what um, nutrition um we have a, a population coming to live in our country who are going to be extremely traumatized and we have no sense of planning around that so the migrant population but equally again and something i'm particularly passionate about is that older person experience and the qualitative study did say you know there are people particularly widows in the generation that we have that are financially very impacted by um, bereavement. And everyone just thinks because they're old that this is just get on with it and it happens, but you aren't you old. So I um and carers, I think that loss of identity of the person that they loved and cared for, but equally 
the loss of an income that you know that they had so that's something I think I certainly would love to see us delve further into because yes we all experience bereavement but it's not always the same experience kind of the COVID analogy you know what was it we were all on that boat but we didn't experience the journey the same you know um so I, again wasn't something that we went into the reports went into in a great deal of detail but I think it's certainly something that should be explored um because yeah and I, it prompted me by when you were saying about the the Jack's law you know uh, it's challenging but it's understandable why one loss um warrants particular bereavement leave but it is challenging because it puts, you know, the greater emphasis on a certain type of loss, which, you know, may not necessarily be the goal that we want to achieve at the end of it, which is, you know, recognition that this has an impact on everybody. Just some of us may be more impacted at certain times um, through certain losses. So, yeah, it was absolutely. And as Amanda said, you know, it's it's not necessarily about the the name of the relationship. It's about the experience of that relationship. And I think a thing that you mentioned is that whole area of migrants and their experience of bereavement. I would safely say, and I don't have any evidence base for this other than there's no no way it's not right. Um, I would safely say that every migrant who has come here through forced displacement, through, you know, wars or conflict, every single one of them is bereaved. Every single one of them has had that experience. And yet... We don't see it. We don't talk about it. We don't engage with it. There was kind of a nod to it with the temporary protection directive for the the Ukrainian migrants coming in, that there would be or would attempt to be uh, social uh, psychosocial supports or mental health supports, particularly around, you know, uh, psychiatry and that. And that deals with trauma. But there's also that whole piece around bereavement as well. That these are people who have lost families, whole families, and or have had to leave people behind. And that, you know, isn't acknowledged in any of the rhetoric we're seeing at the moment around migrancy. It's all I, you know, it's all quite polarized and quite, I suppose it's it's quite a difficult conversation. And yet when you come to actually hearing people's stories. You'd be horrified if that were you. You'd be horrified to think that that could be somebody you knew and loved. And yet we we almost just try to ignore it because there's so many other things that need to happen in that space. And um, I think what I was pointing out was um, the support systems that we naturally have, our family and our friends. So when somebody dies, they are our natural supports. And for the vast majority of us, they are enough. But when you are living in a new country or different country, they're not there. They're not there like they naturally are for most of us. So even the regular day to day is kind of just different again for um somebody who lives in a, a different country and you don't have the the natural sports to fall back on. So it's kind of it's it kind of gets bigger when you look at it. You know, yeah. And I think it's an important thing to name because it's certainly not. The natural experience which is you fall back and you you depend on your family and your friends to keep you going um absolutely for many that won't be the case and you mentioned carers as well and i think much in the same way as with older people there is that kind of thing well weren't you expecting it 
you know, isn't this something that was just they're going to happen now anyway? They're gone. Oh God almighty, do I hate that phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it is that, it's that, you know, God, you must be, I mean, people actually say those words. If you are a carer, that's such a part of your identity that this is what I do. This is who I am. It's not my job. It's what I am 24 hours a day in a lot of cases. We did a bit of work with Care Alliance a couple of years ago around that, around support for informal carers after the person died and looking at all the losses. Like it's not just the person dying. It's all those people that used to come and help. Do you know if there was... Um, a carer coming in or um, it was a nursing home, you know, community palliative care. So it's not just the person's gone, but everyone's gone. And talking about that relief piece, I suppose sometimes for some cases, there's an element of relief as in there's that physical care. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have that anymore, but it's amid all the other feelings, the missing them and the sadness and, you know, all anger, all of that. But sometimes people are afraid to talk about that little bit of, relief from maybe the physical demands or something like that but yeah if, and particularly around uh, maybe not um totally with every informal carer but uh, in chronic illness you know that the taxis to the, in the it was really came up in the qualitative research actually it's the the taxis to the hospitals you know or um have to take a half day of work because i have to go to an appointment with someone it's all those other financial implications that come up and then so the bereavement after bereavement the other implications are on top of all the the, the end of life um financial implications that are on top of that you know many people will lose a double income they they may be caring for um you know a person under the age of 65 and they may be the main beneficiaries of their disability allowance and then they get their carers allowance and both of them if the person dies are gone that's really really significant and you talk about returning to a workplace, like what do you return to? And I know Care Alliance and Family Cares Ireland, you know, they're very, and in fairness, I think the government have been trying to acknowledge the, the change that it brings, but what do you return to? How do you apply those skills that you may have dedicated the last 10 years of your life to? So I think, like I say, the report didn't go into it in as much detail, um, but there's certainly a wealth of possibility to be explored there in terms of really understanding that experience um, and hopefully improving it. And I think that's one of the positive things from this report. Look, this is exploratory. It's going to give us lots of information that it has, but it's also given, given us lots of direction. What kind of things did people discuss in the focus group about being left with no income? I know one, I know you talked about quotes, but I, I think one quote that hits me, and it's probably the one you were talking about, Colette, is um, there was focus groups with people who work and interact with people who are um, impacted financially. And then there was seven in-depth interviews. And one of the ones, and I think that's what you were talking about, Colette, is one of the participants said, my income was halved. You know, our household income was halved, but we still had the same expenses. Our expenses wasn't halved. Mm-hmm. And possibly yeah. increased because, you know, I suppose particularly younger families where maybe somebody may have shared the the childcare and you know you have to invest more in childcare to maintain an income um so i think it's that the the ramifications and if the, the again kind of going back to that thing those solid supports that the majority of us rely on if they aren't there that's when you're really going deeper into trouble and i suppose we talk about a, an adult bereavement care pyramid and 
like the majority of us will sit at the bottom of the pyramid where we will cope and we will manage and we will get through with the supports of our family, sometimes our community um, and our friends. And then we go up into the pyramid and that's when we start to delve deeper into really significant experiences where people are challenged for a whole variety of reasons, whether it's the cause of the death or the, the, the supports that they may have around them or just their own well-being. One thing I wanted to touch on, Amanda, I know we didn't go into it in a whole lot of detail because the numbers started to dwindle down through the thousand people. But one of the things that was unpicked was um, in terms of seeking support for their health and particularly going to their GP, it was younger people actually who had experienced bereavement, which shows they have a better recognition that this isn't the way to be feeling normally because something very important has happened to you. Um, and, and that's possibly a good thing because they recognize, but equally, I think it, it was attached to a feelings of loneliness and isolation that they were, you know, identifying in themselves that sought the support. But I would be concerned again, going back to older people when they've experienced this really significant loss in their life and they don't identify this because they're told that it's normal and well, shouldn't you just get on with it? And aren't, aren't we all, haven't we all lost somebody? And, um, Actually, it was younger people that identified this isn't the way I should be feeling. And they sought support. Like I say, the numbers were quite small because it was, you know, had you lost somebody had somebody died and then had you seek support and what age were you? So the numbers were quite small. So we didn't dwell on it too much, but certainly something I picked up on in the report. I think, again, there is that piece around mental health stigma. And, you know, we've gotten better. I saw a great line um in the last couple of days where it was like we we got better at mental health we need to start talking about mental illness um but it's you know we have got better at having conversations at recognizing that mental illness mental ill health is an issue that needs to be addressed but it's it has you know it's a generational thing very much you know there's there like i i remember certainly talking to to older people in my life and it would have been you know it's just need a friend or they just need to go for a walk. You know, it's it's that's that was always the thing of a bit of physical labor and you know, yeah. maybe an old chat over the a pint in the pub. That that's what you needed rather than I suppose younger people who know, well, if I if I have that pint in the pub, that may not actually help the, the whole mental health issue. <laughs> that might make things a whole heap worse. Um, and then when you're left with no friend to talk to, when you think, well, actually, the only way is to either have that chat or go for the walk, but you're an older person with frailty and social isolation issues, what do you do with that? Yeah, and the recognition, and certainly that is something that is common, it's that uh, uh, older people will experience bereavement because, uh, you know, one of the, the, the who who is dying, it is older people. So hence it's going, you know, the vast majority of people who die in Ireland will be in the over 65 bracket. But, it's that they know that their experience is as valid as those very unique, difficult, unexpected deaths that they also warrant and deserve to have the support. So it's something I think, you know, bereavement support groups, um, I think it's something we particularly need to highlight to them that, you know, we need to reach out um, to older people in, in possibly different uh, settings as well. Like we've talked about it, Amanda and I around nursing homes that, you know, death is everywhere in nursing homes, but it's not acknowledged. And it, well, it's not that it's not acknowledged. I have to say some of the nursing homes I have visited and worked in 
are amazing at acknowledging death, but I suppose the community around them aren't so great at acknowledging what happens in them. So um, that outreach to people isn't just kind of select for selected groups as um, what you'd like to see. Um. And what we try to do is work with those organisations already in that space and just try <clears throat> work with them to make, you know, uh, grief informed, you know, because a lot of the time the older person will need to just have that conversation yeah. with alone or and so and that person who is on the end of the phone has a little bit of information around but what is normal you know and get a bit of a sense okay actually this person I'm talking to probably needs a little bit more support than what I can give them and then they're aware then what's available in the local area for that person we've talked about the the, the, the older people's experience and I mean I'm always struck when we talk about end of life care I think end of life as in when I'm old that is going to be the end of my life that I am I'm, I'm older but that's obviously not always the case so when should people start planning for their funeral when is it you know that that people should really start looking at the impact of this not just again you know and, and great for those people who were able to get the money together to pay for the funeral costs and all of that but when should they start planning for those conversations with loved ones as well of this is what we need to do for that day or that couple of days. And then afterwards, this is the kind of thing we need to provide for. It's so funny. And you talk about circumstances and serendipity. Um, only yesterday I wrote in my, and I think in-laws should stay well out of this, by the way, but <laughs> in my in-laws um, family WhatsApp group, they, my mother-in-law mentioned something along the lines of this. And I said, there is one good time to do this. And that's when people are well. It's the last time they want to do it. But when somebody becomes very sick, very suddenly, possibly, it's very difficult to start to talk about end of life because it suddenly becomes so imminent and it's the hardest time. Obviously, when somebody has some sort of life changing diagnosis, that is going to mean that end of life is closer than they would have maybe expected or thought about that after maybe, you know, I suppose, digesting the initial news and shock that that may bring that is sometimes also a good trigger to 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 encourage people to talk about it but for me the best time you do this is when you're well when you know what you want that may change when you when your circumstances may ch- shift but certainly if you chat to people when they're well it's less intimidating because you're like what <laughs> I you know and I, I I just think that one of the things we we try to promote through our think ahead planning pack is just having the conversation so you know when you talked about the funeral and Amanda was highlighting some of the 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 costs that are associated it's all the unspoken things around a funeral that aren't you know the things that aren't said do you want a funeral do you want to be buried or more as more happening now people want to be cremated and it's like if you've never had that conversation how did you know or how are you second guessing yourself it's interesting because um i suppose it's how i'm comfortable talking about this area because i've been working it so long i've had three mothers or three brothers and then my mom and dad and so my dad would be saying yeah i want to be uh, he calls it burned rather than cremated <laughs> no so he he knows all these things he wants and they're Whereas you try and have this conversation with my mom, I was like, no, no, we're not going to talk about it because it'll just make it happen. Do you know? So it's all these different. And it's like, why are you so not... morbid, Amanda? Why? She's like Morticia Adams. I won't, yeah. I won't tell you what my nickname is from my brothers. Do you know what? Have... And then my father in law died a couple of years ago and he had a prepaid funeral. So everything 
was literally planned and paid for. And basically when he died, his wife just had to make a phone call. So everything, you know, so it's kind of, um, it is, it's that balance of being able to have those conversations. Like I brought the the, the packs home actually from the Thinking Ahead packs, <laughs> strategically left them, you know, around. <laughs> but even it's got useful information, like banking information. Like I was saying to my husband, like I, I haven't got a clue your banking information. I don't know your bank number. I don't even know your pin code, do you know? So it's having all it this. Until you need to. Or he looks after certain bills. I look after certain bills. And I'm like, I don't actually know who our gas provider is. Yeah. You know, so all these practical stuff that is, it's quite handy, apart from end of life decisions, you know, and yeah. all yeah. this other stuff. Yeah, I mean, I took one of those thinking ahead packs. Uh, we had a we had a, a very early on research advisory group meeting um, and they were being like that dished out like like sweets. Uh, so I took one home with me and it languished away. And it was it was one of those things I was like, I'm going to I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it now. I'm going to do it now. I'm going to do it now. And it would move into certain parts of the office. And I eventually said, right now, come on, get in and do it. Um, and it, it is brilliant. It's brilliant. Because like that, I was like, I don't I barely know my own bank account. <laughs> You know, I'm going to have to go and, and find where all this stuff is. I have no chance of knowing where your stuff is. Yeah. And like even just recently, like I had a problem with my Internet. I couldn't ring Sky. I work from home and I couldn't ring our Internet provider. I had to get my husband home so that he could ring because he's the only one named on the bill for some reason. <laughs> but so they won't talk to me. But like even trying to do stuff like that, it's like, how am I going to do that in the depths of everything else that happens with a bereavement mm-hmm. um and you know heaven forbid if anything happened to both of us how was anybody else going to know where everything is and what to do so you know it's it's so important to do that to have that resource because it is i mean like that as i said it followed me around the office for a good year and a half but when you get into it like it's brilliant really brilliant and at the core of it is and i think this is if you don't do it for yourself, it's for the people that you love, that you don't want to be stressed and upset when you're not there anymore, when you are dead. You you know, like this is it. And I think one of the best things about Think Ahead and, you know, I suppose like your example there, Amanda, of your own in-laws, like that is that's that's probably the pinnacle of it, you know. And one of the things we call for is that transparency around funeral costs. So you just know what you're getting when you go in. Um, and the best way to do that is to, well, to pay for it yourself and to plan it for yourself. But that's not going to be everybody's preference or situation, you know, for all sorts of reasons. But to know that when you've written it down, and obviously it can change and it will change, but when you've written it down, you have that peace of mind. I've done that. I think they know now. And I hope and trust that what I want has been heard and it's written down um, and it'll be respected. And I do think it brings you don't generally tend to hear about the people that thought about what was written down because it was written down. Now, when you go into wills, that's a whole other. That's an entirely different scenario. Scenario. Yes, it's totally different. Podcast. <laughs> I can't believe they wrote that down. <laughs> but like I remember one lady saying to me, my dad had picked out his tie um, and I thought, oh, my God, isn't that so wonderful? Because would you want to get the tie wrong? Would you want to get what they wear wrong? No, you would not. Um, so having the conversation is a little bit of a strange thing. 
But I think for me, it's all about timing. And if you do it at the right time, generally it won't be the right place because you might be in the car and you kind of go, oh, I don't have it here. And But having, I suppose, timing and placing it um, is really, really important. And Colette, what you're describing there is maybe your subconscious was just mulling through it and figuring it out. And then when the time is right, you will do it. But certainly we have seen you know, um, more and more people wanting to engage in those conversations, which is really positive. Um, and we, re, 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 we relaunched our Think Ahead planning pack in October last year with Dr. Tony Houlihan. And I, he spoke about his, his wife's experience um, and his experience, particularly through her end of life journey um, and how much solace and comfort it brought for both of them. So, you know, there really is something to be said, but I equally would say it's not for everybody and I don't think it's fair to force it. However, I think there's certain aspects that all of us can go to, just maybe not all of it. Um, and money is often the, the first thing that people will be like, yeah, there's money there. It's here. and It's done. And you're like, you could have told us. <laughs> you know, did he tell anybody that he had done that? Like he had his funeral paid for? I hope he told someone. Oh, he did. Because the two of them uh, went and planned their both of theirs and prepaid and known uh, my hubby's mom she bartered like so. <laughs> <laughs> I love Again, that. At the best point in your life when you're well and you're there and yeah. you're going I'm not paying that for that don't be ridiculous um when you're not when you're not in that struggling situation where you just have to make a decision because the person needs to be buried by Tuesday. What yeah. really struck me about our conversation when we had it here was neither of us actually wanted to be buried or should be cremated. So like I had been saying, you know, I was I'd been reading up on this this other piece about how you could be buried kind of in a biodegradable sack as a tree. And I was like, isn't that an amazing thing? Imagine giving that to the world where that that's your legacy. I would love that. And my husband was like, well, actually, I've always wanted to donate my body to science. He's he, he, he's a chemical engineer and he's really into science. And he was like, I've always wanted to donate my body to science. And I've actually been looking into it and I've downloaded the forums. And I was like, no one would ever have done that to either of us. <laughs> That's not what anybody would have thought. Yeah, do you know what I'm going to do with this pair? <laughs> no, and now you can put the steps in if that is what you choose. Because obviously like I'd researched mine. He those, downloaded yeah. forms for his. Neither <laughs> of us had talked about it. Yeah. It's always it, it's always surprising. Um, and what do you think? Like, did did you just transmit that to each other by osmosis? No, yeah, exactly. And in I suppose with with all of that combined, and all of the the things that we've mentioned from the report as needing to be followed up on, as needing more research, as needing more policy engagement. What would your policy recommendations be? And specifically, given that we're now already in in budget kite flying mode. What would your specific asks for Budget 24 be? The budget is obviously quite specific in that, you know, you're calling for the financial investment. I think that that piece around, you know, not necessarily looking, examining and investing in the need for more awareness around exceptional, additional, naming it not just as funerals, but um, that the the costs do extend. um, In terms of the budget, that's probably one of the, the key ones. But Actually, uh, given that it's a financial impact report, the the the, the recommendations actually st- extend much larger than just um, investment as in money, you know, money needed. It's, um, you know, that statutory bereavement leave, I think, is a really important one. 
Um, and that's not necessarily that's kind of more an engagement consultation process with employers and all that around understanding the financial impact of that, but not necessarily to be rectified by budget um, proposals. The like I was saying, transparency of funeral costs, and we've had good engagement from funeral directors. They want their customers to know what they're paying for as well, but the I suppose the practice is still not as we would like it to be, which is you know transparency from the minute whoever you are and whatever point you're at when you walk into to those um funeral directors. Uh, information is massive. I, you know, how people access information. So this is why this podcast is such a wonderful opportunity to hopefully signpost people or give them ideas around um, resources that they can attend to. But, you know, when you're in the depths of it, where do you go? Um, and we want to acknowledge the Citizens Information Board do in exceptional work in that regard and they keep their website so updated. Um, but it's not necessarily when you're bereaved, the first thing you think of. So something you know names your your experience in it that um signposts you to that yeah the exceptional need or the additional needs payment we do need to look at it we we think the the process is onerous on people it's very difficult and it's becoming i think a lot of the soundings that we've been having are it's much more difficult now because um the community welfare officers are, are slightly less visible which for some people that might be a good thing but for many it wasn't um, you know, knowing your customer, knowing the needs that they have was actually a positive thing in many in many instances. So just getting the balance there around the additional needs payment and predominantly more awareness. But I kind of the thing that's banded all together is we're very conscious that bereavement is is sometimes fleetingly mentioned in strategies and often not mentioned at all. And that lack of a coherency around our approach to bereavement um, through a national bereavement policy is is really critically lacking. Um, but I, I suppose that's probably a longer term ambition around how do we get the departments all to recognize they have a role to play because they're they're pretty quick to, to drop it. Not my bag, not my bag, which we appreciate. It's not fully your bag, but you have something in the bag that's of relevance yeah Amanda I'm sure there's other you might have other thoughts on that no no I think you've picked up on everything I suppose with the the signposting it's I suppose people are vulnerable and overwhelmed after the death of someone close and it's like where do you go there there is so much out there and it's around it's not having a one-stop shop it's kind of like look go here and then you'll be signposted for example um, if you're bereaved, go here. If you're looking for information around practical or welfare, here's citizen information. Do you know, and that signposting and pulling all the stuff that's already there into one kind of uh, portal in some way. You're not reinventing the wheel because there are st- is stuff already out there, but it's stop having people to go to all these different places for different things. Yeah, and something that names it, you know, to, to acknowledge that experience because if you're rooting through something and you're like, I don't see me in this and you're in the depths of you know, but even in the months and at, at that follow a bereavement, where am I? Well, why isn't it naming my experience? And I think, you know, you naturally kind of get a document and you kind of scan through it for the words that mean something to you. And if there's never a mention of grief, loss, bereavement, you know, that's going to feel inapplicable to you. So that was one of the things it wasn't necessarily monetary investment. We really wanted that name change to to name a person's experience so that they may identify themselves and they may recognize there are supports available for them. And you've both named, as my final question, I promise, you've both named 
the fact that there is there were so many questions coming out of this piece of research that will hopefully lead to other pieces of research. Are you hopeful of getting more funding to to start exploring those other areas? Well, one of, I suppose one of the things regarding research, OK, we are going to look at um, specific populations that Avril um, spoke about. But one of the things I think we will get funding for initially anyway is part of the research was identifying databases that we could use to mine around information. So, for example, Tilda, they collect variables. So we could look at health impacts um, around bereavement, employment impacts around bereavement. So there are, I know it is limited because it is um, at an older age that it does capture data on. But one of the things... It, the report did give us a, a scoping document or um, of possible um, questions that the data that we currently carry in Ireland, that, you know, we could ask some questions, answer some questions. Please. Yeah, and certainly if there are listeners, because, you know, the listenership of um, an organisation like Social Justice Ireland, maybe there is others that identify this experience, haven't necessarily acknowledged it, but see opportunities. Um I think it's something we do want the momentum and the longevity of this to continue um, because it does have a ripple effect. Um, but yeah, I, asking for specific funding, I think it's probably more likely to be looking at opportunities such as the health research board, like um, Amanda was identifying there, where you have data, it just hasn't been extrapolated in a, such a way that looks at particular experiences like um, loss. But yeah, it's possibly something to consider um, it was a, you know, it was a great grant to get from the Department of Social Protection, but certainly, and I think they acknowledge that from the outset, it, it, it opened more questions than answers. And it just showed the depth of the issue that, uh, you know, there, there really does need to be further exploration done in so many different aspects. And we would be, you know, very open because we really do want to see this have a momentum and um, a continuation. So that's, I suppose, the struggle with many pieces of research, you know, it stops with the research and, Yet the the impetus is to to how do you carry it forward? Yeah, we had the opportunity to present it to the Oireachtas, um, and we've had really strong engagement both during, um, before and after, and we intend to maintain that. And you know, there's a number of ministers that are, you know, really quite direct. Uh, you know, I suppose the Minister for Social Protection, Heather Humphreys, the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, that we will be, you know, targeting to kind of. Um, highlight their, you know, this is here now. What are you going to do? Um, how can we help you with that? And with that, I'm going to thank you both so, so much. Thank you so much, Amanda Roberts. Thank you so much, Aral Easton. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, for those of you who want to read the report, I'll put the links um, in the the blurb for the, the podcast. Um, and certainly do check out the resources that are available from the Irish Hospice Foundation website, uh, particularly that Thinking Ahead pack, because you might find out things about your partner you did not know. Thank you so much for listening. Do remember to check out the resources from the Irish Hospice Foundation at hospicefoundation.ie. That's hospicefoundation, all one word, dot I-E. You can access their reports, but also you can access their more practical guides um, and forms that can help you to prepare for your future. As always, thank you so much for listening and stay safe.